Welcome to Meet the Neighbor. I'm Laura Tamayo. Thank you for joining the conversation today. Again, if there are a museum curating your life, what things might there be in the museum of Eduardo Hope? A museum curating my life. Hmm. My library? Definitely my library. One of the things I picked up in university was I want to have my own personal library. And I didn't know how to say that at that time. I was 17 years old when I first went there and I spent practically all of my free time the first semester of university walking the stacks of the main library at the university. Like free time, literally. After class, I would go to the library. When the library closed, sometimes I stayed inside. A couple of nights, I actually slept in the library. After all the lights were off and I had a flashlight and I would read anything I wanted. <laughs> and of course, I did not know some graduate students actually had keys for a cubicle room that they could use for their studying. But I was an underclassman, so I didn't have access to that. But I wanted to be in the library all the time. So, okay, so the graduate students having access kind of explains why nobody ever said anything to you. Like, you were there. I was there all the time. Yeah, they didn't really sweep the place. They just, they were okay with the fact that there was a student there. Mm -hmm. And I would forget myself, and then the lights would be off, and I'd be like, oh, I think I'm not supposed to be here. Oh, well, I'll just stay here and (laughs) read some more. So definitely library. I, I have my personal library, which I've been building since 1996. No, before that, even. While I was still at university, I was already building it. But now I can call it my personal library. I would have a collection of soccer balls. Soccer is my other main passion. Soccer balls and um, club team jerseys and national team jerseys. And specifically, a jersey from the Panamanian national team. Another one from the Brazilian national team. Another one from the Spanish national team. And another jersey from the Dutch national team. Ooh, the Dutch. Yeah. All right. Those are the teams that I'm always interested in. And then for club teams, I would have a shirt from um, AC Milan, another one from Inter Milan. Any Milan fans listening to this would probably <laughs> think it's a sacrilege to have the opposing team's uh, jersey. And um, a shirt from the Amsterdam club, Ajax Amsterdam. A shirt from Football Club Barcelona and a shirt from the Santos Football Club in Brazil. That would be my collection. Just one soccer ball, actually. Why only one? The soccer ball with the hexagons and the pentagons that became very famous after the 1974 World Cup, made by Adidas. Adidas came up with that design and had it be black and white. Before the 1974 World Cup, that ball did not exist. What did it look like? It was a traditional design stitched like how volleyballs are stitched now with strips. Right. Made of 100% real leather, heavy. Because of the stitching and because of the design of the panels, if it wasn't carefully made, it wasn't perfectly spherical. <laughs> oh my God. But with the hexagons and pentagons, Adidas came up with something that would be the closest to a, a spherical shape and maintaining the spher- spherical shape. 
and inaugurated that black and white that everyone recognizes as a soccer ball now for the 1974 World Cup. 1974 was the first World Cup in which Pelé did not play. He had already retired by then. In which the game of soccer became my passion. I didn't get to see the 74 World Cup. I got to see the 1978 World Cup. But I heard about the 74 World Cup through my father. And my father had a favorite player. His name was Jairzinho from Brazil. He had a big old afro. And then one of my first memories of my father is with him sporting an afro. <laughs> just like Jairzinho. Ironically, Brazil did not win that World Cup. And the Dutch national team was a great soccer team. Like one of the greatest to never win the World Cup. Because at the final of the 74 World Cup, Germany beat them. There's some little something between the Dutch players and the German players because of World War II, apparently. But anyway, long story short, the Dutch players had a really beautiful, aesthetic way of playing soccer that, that I stuck with. And that's uh, one of my teams. Wow, so it's really because of the aesthetics. So the, the aesthetics, yeah, the totally. And the way they play, not yeah. so much they're winning, it's just you love the way they actually Yes, play. definitely. They made it a game. It was beautiful to watch. And even if they lost, beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it you love about that? The idea that even if you lose, you lose beautifully. What, what does that mean? You play hard. You play well. You play to win. And you care about how you play. A lot of people compare sports to war, to combat. I don't think that's really appropriate because it's not life and death. It's not really taking anything away from anyone. It's actually adding something to people, to the spectators. And what there is to add is enjoyment and a sense of community and appreciation for what sport can do for the people practicing sport and the enjoyment of watching someone do it right, do it well. So why play ugly? <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned, you know, watching soccer with your dad. Hmm. Could you have some specific memories of things you watched with him or did with him? Well, actually, I didn't watch soccer with my dad. He just had that afro. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you watch he soccer He had that with? afro. Uh, so I grew up watching soccer in the neighborhood with my friends, who are still my friends to this day. They're living in Panama now, um, here in the United States. But um, I used to watch soccer with them. I would go into one of their homes and, and watch TV with them and watch whatever game. It was Argentina against Brazil or Argentina against Venezuela or Brazil against Peru or... Or in the case of the 1978 World Cup, which was my first World Cup, actually watching the World Cup. Yeah, Argentina was all the rage. Argentina and Peru. And Brazil. Brazil also, of course. But Argentina was the winner, so everyone remembers Argentina. And for many years afterwards, we just couldn't stop talking about Argentina. And what I remember is going to my friends' houses and, and just watching the games with them and picking our favorites and looking at how each player played and we would take on player nicknames just based on what we preferred like their playing style and there was a guy by the name of mario kempes who uh, argentinian player he was called el matador i don't think because he was particularly rough or anything like that it just so happened that he was hired to play in the valencia football club in spain so they started calling him el matador 
but um, he became the hero of the 78 World Cup, and everyone had his name in, you know, on their lips. He wasn't my favorite player. My favorite player was a guy by the name of Osvaldo Ardiles, who looked like he was a dancing tango while he was playing. He was so elegant. And then, a few years later, he appeared in a movie with Pelé and Sylvester Stallone <laughs> called, uh, what was the name of the movie? Uh, Victory. Great movie, one of the great World War II movies. And he was in the movie, so he was one of my favorite players. So is that what your friends called you? I was too black and too tall to be a tango dancer in Panama. We danced salsa, so I don't think, yeah, no, no tango dancing for me. But um, I definitely developed a preference for elegant play. And that's the style of play that I prefer. Yeah, you were saying that, like, as kids, uh, you guys would use the players' nicknames with each other. Aussie. No, no one ever called me that. (laughs) My own nickname was stronger than the Argentinian guy's nickname. What was your nickname? Dito. Dito? (laughs) Or Eduardito. Oh, okay. (laughs) And Dito stuck, and I think it's a stronger nickname. It actually sounds more Brazilian. A little bit. So, there you go. Yeah. And I had an afro. At that time. You did? Oh, wow. Your hair is like so like short now. It's like talked very close. Totally different. Totally. <laughs> so tell me about a significant memory from childhood that contributed to who you are as a person today. A significant memory from childhood. It can be ritual. It can be a specific instance. There's probably not no one particular thing that I can put my finger on. I do like a lot of things. There's one thing that a lot of people don't know. I'm a Kung Fu fan. I just love Kung Fu. And the first movie that at a movie theater that I ever went to see was a Bruce Lee movie. One of my uncles, my uncle Andres, had the privilege of taking me to my first movie. And we went to a Chinese restaurant first. And ever since, Chinese food has been my favorite food, especially fried rice. I don't know that Chinese people necessarily eat fried rice, but still it became one of my favorite meals. And right after the restaurant, we went to the movies. I didn't know what to expect. And the movie was called Return of the Dragon. At the end of the movie, Bruce Lee fights a battle to the death with um, Chuck Norris. After that, I just couldn't stop watching Kung Fu on TV. And it probably had something to do with my appreciation for international relations, being curious about people from other parts of the world. Before that, I was just a regular kid hanging out in the neighborhood with my friends. But after that, I actually sought out like reading material about not just Kung Fu, but about people from other countries. And first became interested in philosophy. I actually started you know, reading some things about philosophy. This was when I was eight years old, seven years old. And philosophy for me at that time was Buddhism and uh, Taoism and things like how to move your chi <laughs> no, <laughs> by making movements. And um, There's a scene in a Bruce Lee movie where you know, he's, he's doing some movements and I, I, I was just curious about what all that meant and what was he doing. It was moving energy, and anyway, that it was just very intriguing, and I wanted to find out more about that, so I just started reading everything I could get. So you could learn about the chi. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to use the chi. 
Gain your power. Uh, you mentioned interest in international things. I remember you yeah. mentioned um, international students stayed with you guys. And I, that's where I think you were a teenager by when that started. Now, this was when we had already immigrated to the United States. And in fact, I was already in university, my first year at university, when my mother invited a young guy from the Netherlands, a young Dutch guy to come and stay over. And it wasn't because of empty nest syndrome or anything like that. My brothers and sister were still at home. But I think it was, um, yeah, I just wanted to be contribution to other people and, and invite them into our home. I was not there for that. And I still made friends with them long distance uh, from the university. I would call home and talk with them and say some things in Dutch. I would learn some phrases in Dutch and try to talk to him about soccer. Unfortunately, he wasn't that interested in soccer, so never mind. <laughs> it didn't work out. But there was one guy, right, that um, he would send you, like, football magazines? That was when I was in high school. He didn't live with us, and he was an exchange student in our school. A German guy, his name is Mark. We're still friends to this day. He is now an English teacher living in England, married an English woman. But yeah, he, he had brought over a bunch of German soccer magazines, and I became interested in learning German so that I could read those magazines. I wanted to you know, read all about my favorite German soccer players. I didn't have any favorite German soccer players, but when I saw those magazines, they became my favorite German soccer players, and I wanted <laughs> to read about them. So I went to university. This was my senior year in high school. Graduated, went to university, and I signed up for my first German class. Nice. And that's how that happened. And, of course, Mark and I continued in contact and, yeah, just became fast friends and yeah, been in contact ever since. Okay, so I know you speak Spanish and English. Those are, mm -hmm. like, both of them fluently. And then now you've studied German. Have you mm -hmm. studied other languages? At university, I only studied German. And during university, I also picked up some French and started looking at Portuguese because there was this Brazilian girl that I became interested in. It didn't work out. There was just too much work, <laughs> too many things to study. I stuck with the French, so I can defend myself in French if I have to. And the next trip to France I take, I need to brush up. <laughs> well, I'm sure that, you know, once you've been there for a bit, it comes back, right? You don't unlearn it. Yeah, learning languages is a lot of fun, and especially if you can talk to people. And one of the things I also picked up with my soccer interest was learning how to pronounce people's names correctly. One of the things that I used to do growing up in Panama was collecting stickers. Just before each World Cup, there would be a, a new sticker book with the pictures, where you could put the pictures of the different players on a page for um, the country they represented. So, for example, for the Polish national team, I would collect, you know, the, the players' pictures and stick them on the book, and then I'd have to figure out how to pronounce these names. And I learned how to do it just because I was collecting these cards, and, and I wanted to be able to talk to other people intelligently about who these players were. There was a guy whose name was Kazimierz Dejna, a Polish player who I admired, who was also in that movie with Pelé and uh, Osvaldo Ardiles, and I kept up with him for a while, and then tragically he, he died in a car accident later on in the 80s. But uh, he, um, one of my favorite players from the 78 World Cup, and I learned a lot with soccer and learning to pronounce people's names and then meeting the international students. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So yeah, now we've already mentioned that you'd emigrated to the United States. Did you speak English before you got here? I didn't speak any English. 
but I had developed an ear for it because I had gone to um, to a private school for a couple of years in which I took English classes. And whenever I would visit my grandparents' home, I would overhear conversation in English. So it wasn't alien. I just couldn't speak it. And then once we immigrated to the United States, you know, it became urgent to be able to speak it, but I was able to pick it up very fast. That's what I was going to ask you, because I took German when I was very, very young. The first uh-huh. My second language was actually German. So from uh-huh. two to five, I went to school in a German medium school. Like I literally spoke German in school and spoke Spanish at home. When we came to the United States, it was very confusing because I um, I was too little. I came here, I was five and a half. I was very, very young, so it was very confusing. I got here and I associated languages with places. I had family that spoke Italian, so when we were mm-hmm. at Lulu's house, that's where Italian that? lived. Uh-huh. You know? My cousins went to the Franco Liceo, that's where French, French lived. Okay. I went to school, in my school, that's where German, German lived. Okay. And then everywhere else was Spanish. So I came here and the closest Thing to my experience was German, uh-huh. so I would try and speak to the teachers in German, because English <laughs> sounded more like German than anything else, it's like than the other ones language. did, right? So it was very confusing. From what I understand, once I untangled that and realized that, no, it wasn't some form of German, mm-hmm. but it was another language, uh-huh. I actually picked it up really quickly. And then years later, in high school, when I took German, of course, I stopped learning German and forgot it. But when I took it, it's not that I remembered it, but I remember that I did not have to study, and I made easy A's all the time. You already had an ear for it. Yeah. Yeah. There was something about it that just made sense to me, even though I can't say that I remembered it. I didn't. (laughs) But I'd go to class, I'd listen, I'd do the exercises in class, and then by the time I got home, my my homework took five minutes. And I'd review for the test. It's not like I wouldn't study, but it Uh wasn't like studying for other classes. It was more like... 15 minutes before class. You know, it wasn't effort in the same way. Yeah, you're practically, had you continued with German, you would have been bilingual, like fully bilingual young person. So yeah, you were already familiar. Well, and I was already bilingual before I got here. It's just that I didn't interact in German at home. So when I came here, I had no one to talk to. Right. So it went away. That's what happened to my brothers. They came here when they were four and a half, almost five. They lost their Spanish eventually, but they have an ear for it. So, yeah, it's always there. That's the home language. So how old were you when you came? Like, tell me the trajectory. You're in Panama. You're living your life, doing your thing. Dad's in the military. Dad joined the military to leave Panama. This was in 1979. He was 34 years old. He'd always had the dream of living in the United States. He was 34 years old at the time, and the opportunity presented itself to come to the United States for a management training, something or other. And he was in San Antonio, Texas, and a friend of his said to him, hey, they're recruiting Latin Americans, you know, people that can speak Spanish and English, and my father knew how to speak both, to join the Army, and it's a fast track to U.S. citizenship. Are you interested? He considered it for about a week, talked to my mother, <laughs> my mother was totally blindsided by that. <laughs> and then he took the plunge. He joined the U.S. Army and didn't return to Panama. He just went to basic training. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. After he finished his eight weeks or ten weeks of basic training, he returned to Panama before being shipped off to Germany. This was in 79. And then between 79 and 1982, I probably only saw him once. 
he had some vacation time. He came to Panama, visited with us, taught us how to count in German. <laughs> and that's the main thing that I remember, like learning to count push-ups and sit-ups in German as he was doing them. <laughs> and then he went back to Germany and I didn't see him again until we came to the United States on April 1st, 1982. Oh, I can't remember the exact date, but you just said April. We arrived in April too. I remember because later on, I learned that we had arrived on April Fool's Day. (laughs) Oh, no. But anyway, at that time, it didn't mean anything to me, but it was curious. Yeah, pretty funny. April Fool's Day. Now, one thing, I do want to go back a little because now we know how the military connection happened, Mm -hmm. but there was already English in the air. You talked about grandparents speaking English, right? Right. So what's that connection? Right, right. So long story short, In my family, we have at least three great-grandparents that came from the um, Caribbean islands of Montserrat, Barbados, and Jamaica. They went to Panama to build a canal, right? And then one of my great-grandparents was already in Panama, part of the black presence in Panama from the colonial period when Spaniards had slavery in Panama. But the other three great-grandparents came from the English-speaking Caribbean. And they went to Panama when the United States took over the canal building project. And when they recruited people to go work on the, you know, digging the canal, they wanted English-speaking workers, laborers. So a lot of people from Barbados especially, but also from the other islands in the Caribbean, a lot of men especially, went over to Panama. So that's where um, the English-speaking side of the family came from. Interestingly, right, I have my great-grandparents from the islands immigrated to Panama, and they were English speakers. My grandparents were born in Panama, but in an English-speaking environment at home. And even the neighborhood, the community that they grew up in was an English-speaking Caribbean community. And yeah, that's pretty commonplace, right? Whenever a country recruits a large oh, portion of people for one sector, right. there tend to be housing developments that exactly. are kind of ready for that influx of people. And so you just all end up kind of living together. Right. And there are places in Panama where you can still visit and still see some of that that's still, that's still there, although it's slowly dissipating and integrating with the Spanish-speaking part of the population. But in Colón, on the Atlantic side especially, and some on the Pacific side in Panama City, there are neighborhoods, as you said, where people who are English-speaking Caribbean laborers settled and had access to um, schools and other culturally familiar. They rebuilt their Caribbean culture in Panama, in those areas. So when I was growing up, my grandparents were still living in that old neighborhood. So it would be like stepping off the bus, walking over a couple of blocks, and then suddenly being surrounded by English-speaking people. Although English-speaking of a Caribbean, Panamanian, broken English type you know, variety, a lot of Spanglish. So, but when you said broken, so you're talking, that's going to ask you, are you talking about code switching or are you talking about like Patois and Creole languages? Right. So I'm sure there's a mix of all of that. By the time that I came along, right, we're talking about not just first generation, my grandparents, but also second generation Panamanians, my parents, who grew up 
in both English and Spanish, and then third generation, I'm a third generation Panamanian, they rebuilt their Caribbean culture in Panama, in those areas. So when I was growing up, my grandparents were still living in that old neighborhood. So it would be like stepping off the bus, walking over a couple of blocks, and then suddenly being surrounded by English-speaking people. Although English-speaking of a Caribbean, Panamanian, broken English type, you know, variety, a lot of Spanglish. So, but when you say broken, so you're talking, that's what I'm going to ask you, are you talking about code switching or are you talking about like Patois and Creole languages? I'm sure there's a mix of all of that. By the time that I came along, we're talking about not just first generation, my grandparents, but also second generation Panamanians, my parents, who grew up in both English and Spanish, and then third generation, I'm a third generation Panamanian, so there was a lot of Spanglish. And the English that people speak in those old neighborhoods isn't exactly the English that you would hear in Barbados or Jamaica. It's an English that's very particular to Panama now because of the mix with Spanish. So I don't know what you would classify that type of English. Well, I think at that yeah. point, you know, it's kind of it's still a blended language of sorts until yeah. it settles. You know, once it settles and becomes systematized, then it becomes a Creole. Right. And it hasn't. It hasn't yet. Right. But you know what I mean? It's still in that blended, mm-hmm. code-switching stage. Totally. Moving toward Creolization. It becoming more and more Spanish-oriented and losing more and more of the English. A lot of the people that wanted to preserve their English eventually moved away from Panama. They either went back to the islands or came to the United States. That was the case of a lot of my family on my father's side. And therefore, that was one of the one of the things that my father wanted to do from when he was very young. He wanted to come and live in the United States. He was the last of his siblings to live in Panama. Everyone else eventually moved out and came to the United States. Most of my uncles and aunts now live in New York, in the New York area. Well, so, a change in temperature. <laughs> yeah, totally. And they didn't mind, didn't care. I had one aunt who went to England, wanted to be closer to the queen or something, I don't know, you know <laughs> British Commonwealth thing. But she was of that, of that generation, and she still thought that way. But everyone else came to the United States, went to the New York City area, and just settled. And even now they're branching out, right, as the, the newer generations going to Florida and North Carolina and Chicago and like that. How did you end up in Dallas? We were the last of our family to leave Panama. When our father immigrated here, joined the army, eventually we moved in 1982, and we lived in a few places, Georgia, Hawaii, Alabama, just because that's where he was destined. There were military bases in those places, so that's where he was destined. And eventually, once I finished school, went to university, graduated, did all my traveling around the world, my sister found a job here in Dallas. She was working with the Greater Dallas Chamber of Commerce, and this is uh, 2003. And she and I talked for a little bit, and she said, hey, come on, you know, I want to have family closer by, and by the way, there's a lot of work here. So I came to Dallas, and that was Labor Day, 2003, I just remember the date, and been living here ever since. Were you already married then? No, I was not married, but we had a serious relationship my soon-to-be wife, and I got married, I want to say a year and a half later, after I came to Dallas. Nice. 
Yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but I'll throw it out there. I just saw an interview that Eva did. Ah, uh, with it, yeah, with yeah. Mallory, yeah. So I'm curious, what was the experience like for you? Because I know that her family struggled a little bit with the blending of cultures. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, what was that like for you? I didn't know about that. Eva kept that under wraps pretty well until I went there, right? So we had this long distance relationship. And I would call on the phone and I would talk to the father. Sometimes he would pick up the phone and we'd talk for a little bit. And I thought, well, okay, everyone's getting along just fine. And then eventually I make it over to Spain and I meet them and everything's fine. I bring them gifts and we get along. We seem to be getting along. We're talking, we eat dinner, etc. <laughs> it took about two weeks for me to figure out that there's some drama going on in their home because this is getting too serious. <laughs> there's this guy here, you know, Hispanic, American, black guy. What is he doing here? So Eva had, Eva had her hands full and I didn't know. The main thing I think for them was what would people say? In Spain, that's kind of a, a concern for people. You know, what will the neighbors say? What, what will our friends say? And it was just not common for working class, middle class, young ladies to have an international boyfriend of color. It was just not something that you did. The only people that did that are famous people who go to Cuba and uh, get a you know Cuban boyfriend who speaks a certain way, and then they're all over the the newspapers or the magazines rather but Eva is the daughter of um, two school teachers high school teachers that's just not a serious thing <laughs> well you know well, how is this going to work out you know he's not even a citizen of Spain he eventually he's going to want to go back and what are you going to do are you going to go back with him or I mean, that was a conversation that they were having and I think we need to call out too that um, she's not from a large urban center I'm wondering you know, if that plays into it, because in smaller communities, worrying about what the neighbors think. Outside opinion impacts your life more than when you're in a larger Yeah, family. maybe some of that also. They are themselves transplants. Well, actually, the mother and father are from different parts of Spain. The father was born in Valencia. The mother was born in the, the island of Tenerife in the Canary Islands. And they are living, and they still live, in a little town outside of Madrid called Alcalá de Henares which happens to be the home of Miguel de Cervantes, the writer of Don Quixote. So Alcalá de Henares is a university town, but it's a small university town. So what you're saying, right, about it being a small community, people are more likely to care about what the neighbors think and say. And even though they don't have a strong relationship with the neighbors, but it's just the way that that, that, that it occurs to them, or, you know, they, they, they find out very quickly what people are saying about them, and so they, um, people there tend to be very conservative about yeah. their behavior. So that's precisely what they're dealing with. And I just showed up, and anyway, two weeks after I showed up and I learned that that's what was going on, I actually came up with a strategy. <laughs> oh, nice. Hear that. Basically, my strategy was I need to make friends with Eva's father. I just need to make him comfortable. Yeah. And it was very easy because he was a physics professor. He's really a Renaissance kind of guy. He's, um, he loves to draw and he plays music. He's a guitarist, classical guitar. 
He's a reader. I mean, he's my kind of guy. Do you play instruments, by the way? I am self-taught guitar player. I used to play trumpet. I still read music. It's it's a lot of fun. And by the way, I started picking up guitar in order to impress him. <laughs> but I went with the quickest, fastest, easiest route for me, which was books, since he was a big reader. So I just brought a book as a gift one day. I thought it would be a great conversation piece, and it was. And it didn't take very long at all to establish that friendship with him. And I think his side of the drama disappeared quite quickly. <laughs> yeah, he bonded with you. He bonded, yes. With Eva's mother, it was trickier and it took longer. It took three years. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it took three years for me to have a genuine sit-down conversation. So for three years, what would happen is I would go to their home and I'd be there and hanging out, talking, and I'd want to you know, I'd really want want to, to, to have conversations with each of them and, and with Eva's brother as well, which was never a problem. Uh, he and I bonded really fast as well. But with Eva's mom, it was more difficult because she was always busy taking care of the home. She's a traditional Spanish woman. And as the years went by, I really learned how traditional she was because she's very, very traditional even politically so. And there's a very interesting story about that. But anyway, the main thing was that it took some doing to actually sit down with her and talk and get to know each other. And once we were able to do that, all of that got settled as well. So I think for them, what worked was getting to know me, knowing that I was a serious person. And then what people said mattered less because they got comfortable with who I am and all that. So um, maybe they felt that at that point, because they knew you, they had an answer to what people said. Yeah, definitely. And I started meeting those other people. Eventually, they started to introduce me to them and pointing me out while we we're outside in the street. Hey, this is my daughter's uh, boyfriend and like that. And, and people would see me year after year after year and get used to me, which is something very curious also. So I moved to Madrid, lived in an apartment, and uh, over there it's customary for people as they enter an establishment, it doesn't matter if it's a doctor's office, post office, supermarket, it doesn't matter. Everyone says, hola, como estas? Just as a matter of course, it doesn't matter if anyone answers or not, they just do. Although most people do answer. So for the first three months of living there, no one would say anything to me. I would just say, hola, but no one would say anything back, right? <laughs> and then, and I say three months because I tracked it. <laughs> three uh -huh. months into my living in this neighborhood in Madrid, someone finally said hola back in that same supermarket where I was going. And it was the same person that I was seeing whenever I went in. I think they just got used to me and finally said, okay, this guy's not just passing through. He's actually, you know, in the neighborhood and we relate to him as a neighbor. And they finally said, hola. And it started happening everywhere after that. But it took about three months. It was crazy. I think it's an uncomfortable situation to be in, but I love how patient you were because I think um, <laughs> when we're in our own comfort zone, it's really easy to just kind of, I'll freak out a little if you'll pardon the title. <laughs> you know, 
So when we're we're the outsider, if we're patient with that and remember what it's like to be the mm-hmm. indifferent insider that sometimes mm-hmm. gets freaked out with the different, mm-hmm. we just remember that like when the tables are turned, we're not necessarily mm-hmm. champions of hospitality always. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Especially those of us that have more international experience, we might have more patience with it. But people that don't, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're skeptical about it. And well, you're defend like you were saying. At first, they didn't know if you were even going to be a neighbor. You were just some right. random guy that looked like no one else in town. They'd never seen you, exactly. and they were not going to answer your Ola because you were probably going to be gone tomorrow. And it yeah. wasn't until they could build up that comfort, they could bring that yeah. those defenses down, that they were like, oh, okay, yeah. there yeah. isn't some bizarre you know agenda going on by some stranger. This is a neighbor. We can exactly. back. Exactly. Yeah. That was the feeling I had. And eventually I had conversations about that and we had a big laugh. And I would tell the uh, the storekeeper, "Do you remember when <laughs> I would come in here the first 3 months I used, you know, I lived here and you wouldn't say anything and they remembered that." And we had a big laugh about it and eventually we would go out and watch soccer together in the bar next door. But yeah. <laughs> well, I'm curious. When you know you had a good laugh about it, did he make any interesting comments that give you insight as to why he held back his whole laugh? Yeah, basically, just a stranger here in Spain. They say giri, un giri, just a someone passing through, and they didn't care to make contact and become related. They were just okay, you know, buy your things and go your way. Hmm. And you could say that if. If there are tourists walking through that area, going into that store, they would be treated the same way. There are places where people don't really care about tourists. There are other areas where people care very much about tourists, and they respond to everyone that walks through and say, and, and, and they greet them, and they want to take care of them and make sure that they have a great experience. But in most neighborhoods, it seems like people are not really so much into that. They just want to know who is this person and can I trust them? And that's basically what they do. They just kind of, you don't exist until they see you frequently enough and you're not a troublemaker and you pay, you you know, for what you buy and and all that. And then they say, hey, how are you? <laughs> yeah, they've got a verified part of me. Something not exactly the same, but it's similar. Cancun's a little bit like that. Uh-huh. My dad's been living there forever. But tourists come through all the time. Now, tourists mm-hmm. are very separated. The yeah, hotel zone, like we literally put them on an island, the hotel zone's over there, that's mm-hmm. the tourist zone. So when you come into the city, there are pockets of the city that uh-huh. are tourist magnets. Uh-huh. So everyone expects tourists and da da da. But if you go and then just live there, mm-hmm. if you don't have people there already, it mm-hmm. takes a while to make actual friends. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean people aren't nice. They're polite. They're nice. You know, Mexico's a very hospitable country, so people, you know, will always answer your hello. But uh-huh. as far as like having someone to go have drinks with or watch a game with or something like that, it's, yeah. it takes a minute. It takes and a it's while. because not only is it, you know, the mass of tourists that come through literally every day, but on top of it, when people go to live there, they're mm-hmm. with the developers. They're only there for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. If they're the dreamers that are like, yes. I'm going to leave it all behind and move to the beach and you know mm. and they go to Cancun and all of a sudden they realize this is an area that depends on tourism. People work six days a week. They work very hard. Mm-hmm. They are mm-hmm. not under a palapa drinking out of coconut. That is not right. what is happening. It's not an easy city in terms of the rest of the country's economy. It's an expensive city, mm-hmm. which means you're either gonna have lots of roommates or you're gonna work your butt off because it is 
about as expensive as Mexico City in U.S. terms. It's like moving to New York mm-hmm. and thinking that you're going to just sit at cafes all day and mm-hmm. write your script. That's not <laughs> what's going to happen. Yeah, right? I get it. So get people it. are so accustomed to the fact that people will come in and a year, maybe two, and then they're, they're like, just... I am out of here to go mm-hmm. home. Or, again, the developers that are... Like they've got an exit date. You know they're only here for two. They know exactly yeah. two to three years, but they've got an actual date, and so you know. So people, it takes them longer because they're going to invest all this time and make friends with you and get attached to you, and then bam, you're gone. The local population tends to connect a lot more with each other, whereas the developers, kind of like them and their families, they kind of hang out together more. And it's because Makes of sense. that, the temporary Makes nature sense. of it. But I think it's the same thing. It's like you said, you know, they want to know, are you part of our community? Are you passing? Exactly. It's human to do so, yeah. I think it just kind of happens everywhere. That's why military families kind of cluster. Because you run into each other on different bases, and and you guys come and go. But just the plain fact of um, the transience of our experiences in different places makes military families appreciate getting related quickly to people that are having the same experience and not making too many demands of, of them. Whereas locals will feel that, you know, all these military people are making too many demands of us here. (laughs) So it's more comfortable for military families definitely to um, live together and and cluster, as you say, and and, um, and just support support one another. Well, kind of like the Afro-Caribbean laborers that you were talking about, right? You've got this common experience. Yeah. So just like you'll have those groups living together, just like military families. Yeah. It's not like you have to live on base. Everyone chooses to because it's easier. No doubt. It's so much easier to connect and hang out with someone, make a casual friend, and be okay with the fact that it might mm-hmm. be a friend for six months, it might be for two years. You don't know, but it's okay. Definitely have to get used to that. That took some doing. One of my big traumas was um, living in Hawaii for four years, and then having to move away <laughs> the last two years of high school. That was terrible. And on top of that, where we moved to wasn't, let's just say it took some getting used to, because Hawaii was a very multicultural type of uh, environment, and Alabama is not. <laughs> Alabama. Oh, good Lord. I knew you lived in Alabama, but I didn't realize it was literally Hawaii to Alabama. To Alabama, yeah. It was a total culture shock. For me, being able to go surfing whenever I wanted to, you know, after school, not that I did that every day or even once a week, but I did it, and it was a lot of fun, and we had, uh, you know, I was hanging out with Japanese, Chinese, Filipinos, and of course my military friends, and then going to a place where where kids separated by race in the cafeteria. Wow. <laughs> so, so that was total shock. My two years of high school, they were not miserable. I found my niche. It wasn't in high school, though. It was in scouts. So I did Boy Scouts, or rather I finished my youth scouting experience in Alabama, became an Eagle Scout. So I spent a lot of time camping and developing myself that way. And when I wasn't camping or playing soccer, I was in a library reading. And that was my last two years of high school. Huh, cool. Scouting. Yeah, scouting, soccer, and reading. That's cool. Now, I know that um, your career path, and it's like, I've only got like seven minutes before they come take this room away from us. But if you could just kind of like summarize it for me, because I know that what you started out studying, what you ended up studying, and what you ended up doing are all very different. 
Right. I went to university with intention of being an aerospace engineer. I was going to design the next generation fighter jet after the F-16. And um, I quickly found out I didn't want to design killing machines three years into my aerospace engineering studies. So one of my last social sciences classes that I had to take for my degree was a Monday night history class, U.S. history class, and only met once a week. The teacher was great. He said, hey, you write really well. Why don't you go to law school? So I really thought hard about it, and I thought, you know what? That's more my thing. So I ended up, after three years in the, in the engineering department, I changed majors, went into history, declared it as a major so that I could go into law school, thinking, oh, I have to take a history degree or some kind of social sciences thing in order to go to, to, go to law school, which is not true. I could have continued in engineering, but really what I wanted to do was get away from engineering. I did history and political science, graduated, and became a Spanish teacher for a little while at a Montessori school nearby the university. Then I went to Spain because I was in love and I needed to find out what was going to happen with that. And in Spain, by necessity, I became an English teacher and translator. And 20 years later, I am now a high school teacher teaching world geography. <laughs> nice. Uh, which is great because I get to use my experiences. So what grade level are you working with mostly? Mostly ninth graders and 10th graders. Okay, so those first couple of years. Yeah, of high school. Kids that need to adapt to being in high school. And um, so I say welcome to high school. Every time that they complain about doing something or don't want to do something or, or something is not working out for them in terms of turning in their work or studying for an exam, I say to them, welcome to high school. <laughs> and, you know, I help them out with what they need to, to get to succeed. So, last question. What does the future hold? I have no idea, and it's an adventure. What do you imagine? Do you have plans? Do you have ideas of what you might like the next few years to look like? So the plan right now is to move back to Spain. I promised my mother-in-law that she'd have her daughter back in close proximity by summer 2022. So that's a definite. Wow. Um, okay, summer 2022. Yeah. You know that I'm going to, to be visiting, so I'm writing this down <laughs> and setting alarms. So the next thing for us is finding an apartment over there, and I may be teaching. I know I'll be translating, at least at first, but I have projects. I'd like to um, build a business that's different. Who knows? Well, I don't want to say too much. <laughs> Well, maybe when I turn this off, I'll ask you more. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. You can continue getting to know Eduardo at Eduardo Hope Jr. on Instagram. There's more information for you in the show notes and on the show blog at meettheneighbor.com. Thanks for joining the conversation. Be sure to share in the comments. We'd love to hear your stories. Meet the Neighbor is produced by Tamagam LLC. Our audio engineers, Diego Velasquez and Laura Tamayo. And my good friend is Eduardo Hope. Talk to you next week.